rate, and it took 20 minutes. I would suggest that you read a little slower and divide the week up this way. Take five minutes to read Chapter 1 on Monday, five for two on Tuesday, so forth. By Saturday, you will have completed the letter. And if you will do this throughout the entire series, we're sure you're going to become very familiar with this wonderful letter. I also want to encourage you to memorize one passage, often it'll just be one verse, from whatever is preached. And in your bulletin, on the inside left hand, you will see for memorizing. And it is the very verse that Brother Dave put up on the screen this morning, the very three verses. So uh, perhaps after 20 or so sermons, we will be very familiar with Paul's letter to the Galatians, and we will have memorized a number of passages. Now, you may naturally wonder why Galatians. Let me explain. I'm going to give you a couple of practical reasons and then a few spiritual reasons. Practically, last year, 2010, we did an expositional series on the Gospel of Mark. We didn't want to do another gospel immediately, particularly Matthew and Luke, because they're so similar. With regard to epistles, only a couple of years ago, I did a series on 1 John and then one on James. Presently, doing an exposition of 1 Samuel in the Monday morning Bible study. Pastor Sam did serious work in Paul's letter to the Christians at Rome. Pastor Rich did some fairly serious exposition in the book of Ephesians. Pastor Mark did his series on the neglected one-chapter books of the Bible and actually did an exposition of Philemon, 2 John, 3 John, and Jude. Pastor Keith is presently doing an exposition of First and Second Thessalonians in Disciple You. Brother Ron Miller just finished an exposition on the book of Philippians. So, we have already done, or are presently doing, a number of epistles. But, Galatians stood out to your pastors as an unpreached book, I think, in the history of this church. In the future, if the Lord is willing, we will take on perhaps the Gospel of John, and we've even talked about doing an exposition of the book of Hebrews. Those are some practical reasons, but let me give you more importantly some spiritual reasons. Why Galatians? Well, since Galatians is intensely focused on the gospel, and since it wonderfully establishes the doctrine of justification by faith, and since at the same time it teaches us much about living out our lives by the power of the Holy Spirit, we wanted to take 20 or so sermons to soak our souls in the biblical truth of these vital subjects. We, as your pastors, want this church to become more and more and more gospel-saturated, gospel-driven, gospel-compulsive, gospel, if you will, obsessed. Nothing will better serve us with regard to having conversions, growing in grace, making progress in holiness, separating ourselves from the world, setting forth an attractive Christianity, humble living, serving one another, vigorous worship, enterprising evangelism, zeal for missions, joy in our Christian lives, and just plain old love for God than becoming preoccupied with the gospel. You know, dear brothers and sisters, that we can never, ever run out of more to learn about the gospel. You realize that. You will never master the gospel, not out through the eons of eternity. It will be much of our preoccupation, I'm sure, during the how delightful. It will forever 
that is the contemplation of the gospel, take us into the infinite glory that belongs to the persons of our triune God. Because the gospel finds its in the very nature and we can never be too clear in our understanding of justification by grace alone, sola gratia, through faith alone, sola fide, in Christ alone, solus Christus. This vital teaching was called by Martin Luther the article of a rising or falling church. And it is under attack today. Luther is well known for his profound love for Paul's letter to the churches in Galatia. In fact, he said on one occasion, the epistle to the Galatians, I have betrothed it is my know anything about the life of No, he was deeply in love. He's saying to the world that there is a sense in which he loves this little letter the way he loved your wife. And so it was valuable to John Bunyan. John Bunyan came across a copy of Luther's commentary on Galatians. And here's what he says. In his spiritual autobiography, Bunyan describes how a battered old copy of Luther's commentary came into his possession. He was surprised how old the book was, but he was even more surprised when he read it. He wrote, quote, I found my condition in his experience so largely and profoundly handled as if his book had been written out of my heart. I do prefer this book of Mr. Luther upon the Galatians, accepting the Holy Bible before all the books ever. By Luther so loved Galatians. Because it focuses so wonderfully on the glory of the gospel, on justification by grace. Now, we need to be clear on this. And the reason is because the doctrine of justification is freshly under attack in our day. And no wonder, if you were the devil, what doctrine would you rather attack more than the doctrine of justification? By grace through faith. And so we must be clear on it. And the reason we must be clear on it is because our salvation depends upon it. So let me just quickly define the doctrine of justification. We may have visitors. We have people who aren't really familiar with some of this religious vocabulary. It's just a sort of big word which means that God has found a way to pronounce sinners righteous and acquitted from the law through the life and death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. God's justice requires that all sin be punished, that all of our sins be punished in us unless we can find a substitute. Jesus Christ was God's substitute. He lived a perfect life. He kept all of the laws that we violated. Perfectly, word, thought, and deed. And he took that blameless life to Calvary's cross, and there he endured in his own soul and body the wrath of God which we deserve, and he got it from his Father. We just sang about it. And that was God punishing the sins of those who would trust in his Son. And he died on that cross to make an atonement, a covering a payment for our sins. And he rose again from the dead, as we sang as well, and proved that the atonement was accepted by the Father. And the promise of the good news 
gospel, good news, is that all who look to Jesus and give him their sins, he in return gives them his perfect righteousness. And God says, not guilty ever again. He accepts the perfect payment of Jesus on behalf of sinners. And because they are now clothed in his perfect righteousness, he pronounces them righteous for all eternity. That's justification. By grace, not through works, through faith. And that doctrine is under attack, and we need to be clear on it so that we can embrace it savingly and proclaim it as well. So Galatians offers us a wonderful and helpful instruction on the gospel, on justification, and also what it means for us to walk by the Spirit, Galatians 5.16, to be led by the Spirit, Galatians 5.18, and to bear the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5.19 and following. These are just a few reasons why we have chosen to do a series on Galatians. Now, this morning, we are privileged to take a brief look at Paul's introduction to this letter. In verses 1 through 5, we find him introducing his concerns. We have what is commonly called a salutation. Now, salutation is sort of a technical term, but, you know, it's still what we call the greetings in our letters. If you take a course on letter writing, or some business course, there's always the salutation. It just means the saluting, the, the greeting, the identifying who is writing. Interestingly, however, in those days, uh, the uh, salutation include, was sort of the return address. We, we get a letter and we read it and especially if we're concerned about what it's saying, and we quickly run to the end of the letter to see who wrote it. In Paul's day, the return address was in the greeting. Paul, he didn't, as soon as you held it in your hand, you knew who the letter was from. But in these salutations, particularly of the Apostle Paul and others who wrote in those days, you will find three things. You will find, first of all, the writer identified the readers identified, and often a kind of wish or prayer or blessing or, if you will, benediction. And that's what we have in Galatians. Notice, verse 1, Paul, an apostle. He's identifying who the writer is. But he wants to say more about this apostleship that he possesses. He says, it's not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. And then he adds, oh, there are some friends with me who also send their greetings. So he says, and all the brothers who are with me. That's the writer identified. Who are the readers? Very simply, you see them in the second part of verse 2. To the churches of Galatia. By the way, this is the only letter written by Paul that was purposely designed to be uh, written to several churches. Uh, many of the letters were circular, and they made their way around, but they were addressed to a specific church. This letter is not addressed to a specific church, but to a group of churches in the region of Galatia. So we see the writer, the readers, and then immediately in verse 3, we have what you could call a benediction, or a blessing, or a wish, or a prayer. Grace to you in peace. And he knows the source of grace and peace. So he quickly says, from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And thinking of the Lord Jesus Christ, he realizes that there is no grace and peace for anyone apart from what he did. And so immediately he lays out the gospel, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. And when he thinks about that, he breaks into doxology. And says, to whom be the glory forever and ever. But you see the three parts. The, the writer identified, the readers identified, and a kind of blessing. This is a very common approach on the part of the Apostle Paul. Now, I want to quickly show you something. And I have, a, there's, a, there's a method. Or no, there's a madness to my method. I was going to say there's a method to my madness. There's that too. 
Um, or is that the way it goes? Method to your madness? I don't know. I want you to notice with me just very quickly, in several cases, this structure. Go to Romans. This is the beginning of Romans. We're going to do this very, very quickly. The first um, letter from the Apostle Paul in our Bibles after the book of Acts. Just notice, verse 1, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle. There's his name. There's his office. He sets his office right before them. And then he identifies to whom he's writing in verse 7. To all those in Rome who are loved by God. I want to emphasize that. Notice how he describes the Roman believers, the recipients of this letter. Those who are loved by God and called to be saints. And then what follows? The benediction. There's your structure. The writer identifies himself. The readers are identified. And he says something kind about them. And then he wishes a blessing upon them in the form of a benediction. Now, go quickly, if you will, to Second uh, Corinthians. No, First Corinthians. Sorry, First Corinthians. The very next letter. Oh, by the way, I'm not going to ask you to turn back. Forgive me, but I just listen to this. Um, in verse 8 of Romans 1, he went on to say this, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed. I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you. Now notice 1 Corinthians. Paul, verse 1, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. Verse 2, to the church of God that is in Corinth. Notice how he describes them. To those sanctified or set apart in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, and so forth. Then comes the benediction in verse 3. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now notice verse 4. I give thanks to God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. Now would you go quickly to Ephesians? Next book, or not quite, Galatians is next. Skip past Galatians. You're skipping back past 2 Corinthians as well, Galatians, and go to Ephesians. Verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. Still verse 1, that's the writer identified, now the readers, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Thank you, Paul. Thank you. That was encouraging. Then, um, later, he speaks about his thankfulness for them in verse 16. I do not cease to give thanks for you. And then he tells why. I'm almost through with this little excursion. Go now to Philippians, the next book. Verse 1, Paul, and in this case, Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. There's the writer. Here are the readers. To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers. Then comes the benediction, verse 2, grace to you in peace. And then comes this word of thanks. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. Now, if this weren't becoming just a little bit tedious, you know what I would do? I would go on and I would show you Colossians and 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians and 2 Timothy and Philemon. And I would show you the exact same thing again. Now, the question perhaps is natural. Why am I showing you this? The reason I'm showing this is because I want you to notice something strikingly different about Paul's salutation to the Galatians. Go back now to Galatians. And I'm going to be making, I think, a significant point. Something is glaringly absent in this salutation. What is it? Paul, an apostle, that's not absent. He identifies himself and his office. To the churches of Galatia, latter part of verse 2, that's not absent. He's identifying the readers. Grace to you in peace, verse 3, there's the benediction. That's not absent. Search the rest of the letter all day long if you like, and you will not find a word of thanks. You also will notice that when he 
addresses his readers. All he says is to the churches of Galatia. Did you notice in all of the other cases, he would speak of them as the saints in Christ, to the faithful, to the believing. He said kind words to them, and then he always said, and I got to tell you what I'm thankful for about you. He writes the Galatians, and all he says, Paul, an apostle, and then he says to the churches of Galatia. Not terribly a warm and inviting and encouraging. Why is that? No word of encouragement, no word of thanksgiving. And the point I want you to understand is that there's something glaringly absent here, and it helps us understand immediately something of the intent of this letter. You know what? Paul is troubled. Paul is very troubled with these Galatian believers. And it becomes immediately obvious to the sensitive reader. And I'm quite sure that the hearers of this letter in whatever churches it was read, we don't know how many churches, we do know from Acts chapter 14 that there was Antioch, there was Iconium, there was Lystra or Lystra, and there was Derby. At least those four churches got this letter and perhaps other churches. And I'm sure that when the believers heard this, it was a little almost curt, almost blunt, almost like, what? Just to the churches? Nothing about us being saints? No word of encouragement? You're not thankful for anything, Paul? Well, of course he was thankful for certain things, and of course he loved them, and of course he could have said things. This man's heart is burdened. He's deeply troubled about something that every one of us need to become deeply troubled about. That's an application to begin with. He's deeply troubled about something happening to the gospel. Of course, he's troubled about what they're saying about him, because if they can discredit him, then they can proceed to build a new gospel. So he's troubled about two things. But most deeply, he's troubled about the fact that someone's messing with the gospel. And when you mess with the gospel, you ruin the gospel, you destroy the gospel. And when you ruin the gospel and destroy the gospel, you ruin souls and you destroy them. And Paul is troubled about this. And you can feel it. You can almost smell it in his letter. Those two things he was very aware of. And he, he tells us in verse 7 that the, the people who he's troubled with are themselves troublers. Look at verse 7. Not that there is another one that is another gospel, but there are some who trouble you. Paul's troubled with the troublers. Sometimes we call those troublers Judaizers because they were trying to take the Christians in Galatia back to Judaism. Not in jettisoning Christianity and say, hey, forget all about Christianity and Christ and the resurrection. That didn't have anything to do with salvation. No, no, no. That's all good. That's all necessary. But you know what? Your salvation isn't completed yet. You need a little surgery, just a little surgery. It's salvation by grace plus something. And you all know that the second you add the plus, you have zero. You have no grace. And Paul is troubled about this. And you can see it, and you can hear it, and you can feel it, and you notice the tone. And you feel the mood, and you recognize the emotional intensity of this letter. He is getting to the root of the problem, and he is getting there fast. He isn't going to waste any time. Because he wants to get to the root of the solution as well. Notice the emotional intensity. We've already seen some of this, but look at verse 6. He says, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting from him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Look at 3, chapter 3, verse 1. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Look at 4.11. I am afraid. I may have labored over you in vain. Look at verse 16. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? Look at verse 19. My little children, for whom I am again in anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I listened to a sermon last night by 
a man whose preaching we really enjoy, and he was reminding his congregation of what the pains of childbirth were really like when he was in with his wife. And he paid tribute to all the women in his congregation. He said, you women, you deserve a lot of credit and a lot of praise for what you go through in childbirth. It's agonizing. It sometimes causes screaming. And Paul says, you want to know how I feel about this? You are making me go through the pangs of childbirth. And in verse 20, he says, I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone. For now I'm perplexed about you. And when you come to chapter 5 and verse 17, he comes to the end of his letter and he says, From now on, from now on, let no one cause me trouble. That is in this regard, in the regard that you have done. For I bear in my body the marks of Jesus. It's hard to preach a doctrine of justification that gives all the glory to God and robs all the pride of man. And I pay for it, says Paul, and some of you are making me pay that price because you're listening to troublers who want to teach a doctrine of salvation that works mathematically like this. Grace plus works equals salvation. And so he's very troubled. Well, I hope I've said thus far these things in a way that gives you a sense of the context and what this letter is primarily designed to deal with. So let's look at these three matters I, I trust quite briefly. Uh, I really want to get to some applications. We have the writer in verse 1, and he just says that he's an apostle. But notice how quickly he adds not in it, really there's no difference between this and the literal translation except that little word and because in the original it just says Paul apostle not you don't have to read it in the Greek to get the feel not Paul why are you so negative why do you have to start with a not because people are questioning my apostolic authority and if they question my authority and undermine my influence, the gospel will be harmed. You need to understand something, you people in Galatia. I am every bit of, as much of an apostle as any of the twelve ever were. And I suppose if he wanted to, he could have even argued for some one-upsmanship and said, how many of them were struck down on a road to Damascus? by a personal confrontation of the risen Christ? How many of them saw signs and wonders? How many of them were made blind? How many of them had scales in their eyes to symbolize blindness with regard to his understanding of the Old Testament and the coming Messiah? How many of them were sent off into Arabia for three years to have personal dealings with God and receive revelation from him? I am an apostle, not, not from men nor through man. Now that ought to scare you if you're a Galatian Christian. You say, wait a minute. We've been listening to these guys, and they're undermining our respect for Paul, and they're actually saying, you know, Paul got it pretty right, but he didn't get it quite right. And we have made ourselves open to something that is perhaps erroneous or even heretical and we have forgotten that Paul was an apostle, not by men, but rather through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. That means this man has authority. Now, you know by now what an apostle is. An apostle is someone who is sent. It is a personal appointed representative messenger sent by someone similar to an ambassador. But in this case, the sender is God. That makes it very serious. That means there's divine authority in this office. And he was sent not only to plant churches, but to correct churches. Now, if we had time, I would take you 
Back to uh, Acts 26. I'm making a judgment here in the interest of time. I don't think I should, but if you would just make note of it and not chase this down now, because I'd like you to stay with me. But in Acts chapter 26, verses 14 through 15, he's telling King, King Agrippa about his conversion. And you know what he says? He says that when he was struck down, we don't see all this in Acts chapter 9, but he gives us a fuller picture of it in Acts 26. When he was converted, at that point, on the road to Damascus, he was called to be an apostle to the Gentiles. It's very clear. You can check this out later. This is what he's talking about in chapter 1. When you go down there to a verse, shall we say, verse 15 of chapter 1. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son in me. Could I just stop and ask you this? Has God ever revealed his son in you? Well, no, I've not been called to be an apostle. No, this is how you become a Christian. This is what Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians. The God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shined in our hearts to give us the light of the glory of the gospel of God in the face of Jesus Christ. It's an inward illumination that comes through the word of God. Unless God reveals his son in us, I know it's to us, but it's an inward. It's not just mental. It's not just cognizant. There's a spiritual illumination that must take place. And unless you've experienced that, you're not converted this moment while you sit there. And I would encourage you, tune me out for a while and just pray, God, reveal your son in me so that I, too, will believe this gospel that Paul was willing to die for about the work of Jesus Christ on behalf of sinners. So Paul was called to be an apostle in conjunction with this conversion. That's not normal. But it happened. And I just want to underscore by way of application, dear people, that there's divine authority in, in apostles, in God-sent apostles. And you know what? We are an apostolic church. Are you kidding me? I haven't heard anybody speaking in tongues. I thought apostolic Christians were all Pentecostals and Charismatics. Well, that is normally associated with what is sometimes called apostolic churches. But we are apostolic The apostles were inspired by God to write letters to Heritage Baptist Church. And when you read any epistle written by any apostle and it comes to you with not only information indicatives, but with imperatives and it tells you what you should love your wife like men, you have no option to say, well, that's just Paul. No. It's never just Paul. It's never just John. It's never just Peter. It's God. And that's what Paul is saying. And so when we open this book, and when we read this book, and when we study it, and when we memorize it, God is speaking to us. And we need to feel and recognize the divine authority. For us to reject Paul's teaching and commands is for us to reject God, and to reject the Lord Jesus Christ. I just want to remind you of this statement that God himself makes. I'm saving you the time. Listen, he says this. Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. A pretty big God. What is the house that you would build for me? You really think you can build a cathedral that is commensurate with my glory? Are you kidding me? What is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made. And so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But to this one, but this is the one to whom I will look. And don't you just want to know who God will look upon with favor and smile and pleasure? I want him to look upon me with a smile. That's as you want. You want to see my smile? I'll smile upon you. Here's what you have to do and be. To this one, I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Trembles at my word. We can both 
delight in the word and tremble in it simultaneously. And you have no right to delight in it if you don't first tremble at it and recognize the divine authority of Scripture. And I'm calling this congregation to a fresh submission and reverence for the Word of God. Don't read your Bible carelessly. Don't ever forget who's behind the author. Don't ever forget who the author is, capital A. It's God. We're responsible for everything we come to understand. And so I ask you, how do you come before God's Word? How did you come today? Did did it ever enter your mind once for a fleeting moment that in a few minutes God was going to talk to you? Or did you just take it for granted again? It's just another sermon. It's another sermon. No, it's never just another sermon if it's biblical. It's another message from God. How do you leave God's word? How do you obey God's word? How do you cherish God's word? How do you feast upon God's word? Paul has to write to the church in Galatians and say, look, will you please remember something? When I was among you, I spoke for God because I am an apostle, not made one by men, but by God. Let me say a word about the readers, just very brief. We already saw to the churches of Galatia. What's my application? My application is simply this. If the Galatians could wander away theologically, And that's what it was. It was a theological departure, wasn't it? Sure. The Judaizers said, it's it's all good so far, but Paul didn't take you far enough. Here's what we need to add to your understanding of God's method of salvation. And the second they added to it, they distorted it. I've already said that. And what happened? They embraced it. If they didn't embrace it, Paul wouldn't have written the letter. So how can we not say that that the Galatian Christians had wandered away from the truth? Prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. If the Galatians can wander away by embracing error, the members of Heritage Baptist Church can wander away by embracing error. And what we need to do is keep bowing down with a holy trembling and yet a deep love for this word and say, God, speak to me from your word. May my thinking be biblically informed. Don't let me embrace error. Error is so subtle, dear people, and particularly in the doctrine of justification. It's critical. It's the living nerve of the gospel. And none of us should say, well, I've been so well taught all these years that I doubt very much if I'm a likely candidate for error. Well, you just made yourself one by saying that. Very serious. especially with regard to tinkering with the gospel. Well, I want to hurry quickly to the benediction. I can only say a few things about this in the interest of time. The benediction, I think, really, if you can call that whole section a benediction, some just called it a statement, including a benediction. But surely grace and peace to you is a benediction. And by the way, all of Paul's letters, almost without exception, begin with a benediction. We always think of benedictions as at the end. They always begin with one, too. And we should give benedictions to one another. And what is a benediction? It's a prayer. It's a blessing. When at the end of a service, one of us raises a hand and says, grace and peace to you from God our Father, and so forth. It's a prayer. It's a blessing. Paul does want a blessing upon them. He wants them to have what they once had. They once knew grace. They once understood grace. They once embraced grace. And they need to re-embrace it. They once had peace. They were about to lose their peace because you can't have a peace if you add works to grace because then the the question is always, have I done enough? Okay, I did the circumcision thing, the men could say. And the women could say, we've been adding these other ceremonies that we thought were done with and we're, we're adding them, but have we done enough? You'll never do enough. So you can never have peace. But the true people of God who embrace the true gospel of God, have a right to enjoy peace because they understand grace. But you see, peace and grace are rooted in the gospel, and that's why as soon as he's done, he says, From God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, 
who gave himself for our sins, who gave himself for our sins. How can grace come to us? How can we ever possess peace from God? It is through our Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins. How long did it take the Apostle Paul to get to the gospel? You know, I um, I asked Jonathan just to quickly look at the Greek and to tell me how many words, Greek words, were used in this letter. It was 2,243, something like that. There were approximately 3,000 English words. I said, how many Greek words were used before he got to, in verse 3, the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, verse 3 starts, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins. Forty-two words in the original language, 47 in the English. This letter has 3,000 words. I wish somebody like Jim Gawley would do the math and tell me what percentage of the letter was used before he got to the gospel. This is a troubled man, and he knows these people have got to get back to the gospel. And so he wants to get to the gospel as quickly as is possible. And here's the heart of the gospel. Jesus Christ gave himself for our sins. That's what we sang. Now, he had to rise again to prove that the Father accepted it, but the atonement itself happened on the cross. What glory, what wonder, what joy, what delight, what comfort, what peace, what hope this offers to us. We sang this, but I want to just conjure up in your mind this vision again. I want you to come with me for a moment to Golgotha's Hill while Christ is still hanging on the cross. And I want you to get down in your minds spiritually on your knees or on your face. Let's stay on our knees so that we can still look up at the cross. And this is what I say to you. Behold, a scene of matchless grace tis Jesus in the sinner's place. Heaven's brightest glory sunk in shame that rebels might adore his name. Tremendous clouds of wrath and dread and vengeance burst upon his head. Ten thousand horrors seized his soul, and vengeful mountains on him roll. He sighed, he groaned, he sweat, he cried. Through awful floods he passed and died. All penal wrath to Zion do infinite justice on him through. Rose in triumph from the dead. Justice declared the debt was paid. Then Christ with kingly grandeur flew and took his throne in glory to come, saints, with solemn pleasure trace the boundless treasure of his grace. He bore almighty wrath for you that you might all his glory you. Gadsby got it right. He understood Galatians. He understood why John Bunyan found it his most favorite book besides, that is, Luther's On Galatian, besides the Bible. So the content of the gospel is there. And the purpose of the atonement is revealed as well. And again, all I can do is say a word about this now. But you see, God had a purpose in mind in the atonement. He gave himself for our sins for what purpose? Two. To, to what? He gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. Wouldn't I like 10 minutes to open up the significance of the present evil age? This age, the Bible divides history into two ages, this age and the age to come. This age began at creation. It is an evil age because we fell in Adam and sin prevails, and there is a God, small g, who reigns over this age. He is called the God of this world. And men whose hearts have not been changed worship and follow that God 
in their minds as well as their bodies. And so there's a whole world system of evil. And we were once a part of it. But by the grace of God, through the merit of this one who gave his life for our sins, we have been delivered. It began with our conversion. It began with our new birth. We were given new hearts. We were given a new understanding. We were given new values. We were given a new master. We were given a new rule book. We love it. We were given a new family. And through these and hundreds of other blessings purchased by Christ, we have been delivered from this evil age. Are we fully delivered? No, because we're still sinners and we still live in this world. But one day when Christ comes back and raises all of the dead and judges the wicked and brings down the new heavens and the new earth, and unites a sinless soul with a glorified body, we will reign with him throughout the endless eons of eternity. And we will say then, I have been fully delivered from that evil age. But we're presently being delivered. This is the now and the non yet, the not yet. Isn't that glorious? That's part of the purpose. It's a central purpose of the atonement. Deliverance. And notice this is according to the will of God. Sometimes people think, you know, God didn't really want to do this. God was angry and filled with wrath and holiness. And Jesus came down to get God to love us. He died so that God might love us. No, 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 no. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And so it is according to the will of God. No wonder he breaks out with doxology. No wonder he has to say when he thinks of this God, to whom be the glory forever and ever. And he can't even say that. He says, yes! Amen! It's so true! This God deserves the glory because of this wonderful gospel and the effects of the gospel. Dear people, I conclude by saying to you, now you know why Paul was distressed, don't you? If you had forgotten or not understood before, now you know. The gospel's at stake. No, no. Our salvation is at stake. Paul is not going to let people Embrace soul-damning error. And the Holy Spirit inspires him to send a letter to, a, to several churches in a region of Asia Minor called Galatia. But God's intent always was also that Heritage Baptist Church would receive that letter. And God's sending it to us. And he's saying to us, I want you to be a gospel-saturated. I don't want you to be adding anything to grace. I want you to remember that you still, because of remaining sin, have a proneness to go back to legalism and to Phariseeism. There is a Pharisee in all of us. We were Pharisees before we were converted. Why should we be surprised that remaining sin still tempts us to be, to be Pharisaical? And I want to say to us that as we go through this letter, God is, I trust, going to graciously help us repent of remaining Phariseeism. And to just revel in a gospel that is rooted in salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. I conclude with these words of Philip Ryken, pastor at 10th Street Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, successor of Montgomery. This is what he says in his opening chapter. He says to us, there is a way out of Phariseeism. The way out is called the gospel. It is the good news that Jesus Christ has already done everything necessary for our salvation. 
If we trust in him, he will make us right with God by giving us the free gift of his grace. When we reject our own righteousness to receive the righteousness of Jesus Christ, we become former Pharisees. Most former Pharisees have a problem, however. It's hard for them to leave their legalism behind. Although initially they receive God's grace for free, they keep trying to put a surcharge on it. They believe that God loves them, but secretly they suspect that his love is conditional, that it depends on how they are doing in the Christian life. They end up with a performance-based Christianity that denies the grace of God. To put this in theological terms, they want to base their justification on their sanctification. This means that most former Pharisees, indeed most Christians, are still in recovery. Are you in recovery? I am. There is still something of the old legalist in us. Although we have been saved by grace, we do not always know how to live by grace. The gospel is something we receive from time, sometime in the past, but not something we live and breathe. Galatians was written for people like us. Heavenly Father, thank you for the Apostle Paul, in whose heart you put a burning zeal and passion for the gospel. Uh, As one of our hymns enables us to confess, was there ever a missionary like him? Oh Lord, we want to be like him in this regard. We, We want to get the gospel right. We don't want to add anything to it. We love the effects of the gospel. Don't let us confuse the effects with the essence of it. And we pray that Heritage Baptist Church will be made up of people who know that salvation is all of your free grace and unmerited favor. May we, may we demonstrate that by the way we live, the way we think, the way we talk, the way we sing, the way we witness, the way we serve one another. Help us in this series. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.